are starting a new topic, series, Series, and I'm not really sure what we're going to call it. I was thinking about leaving medicine, but that's not totally accurate. But essentially, I have thought it was important for some of my friends to come on here and share their stories about sort of how the traditional medical school to residency to attending path wasn't necessarily the right thing for them Um, or sort of or maybe it was the right thing, but it fell apart because things are shitty. Um, And I think there's this idea that whether you leave or things end for you, that there is sort of no hope or nothing else you can do. And I think it's important for people to hear the stories of those who have left the traditional path, but have also gotten to the point where they've sort of figured out a new path for them. So our first guest is my friend from medical school. We went to medical school together, graduated the same year, and she's going to go by her middle name, Max, on this podcast. And by the way, I use my middle name. Anna's not my first name because some of us, you know, want a, want a layer of anonymity. So I am very excited to have you on here. And however you want to start this off by maybe telling us a little bit about what's going on with you right now or whatever you want to say and then diving into your story. But we're really excited to have you here. Thank you. I'm like really excited to be here. And um, I'm, I'm grateful that you guys are doing this because I'm finally ready to share my story. And I think it's an interesting one. So, um, okay, so I'm Max. Um, I don't know, what else? Uh, okay, so right now I am um, in a new master's program at a very reputable school in the, you know, tri-state area. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm happier than I've ever been and less stressed than I've ever been. And yeah. That's a great intro. Hi, my yeah. name is Max, and I'm happier than I've ever been. I love it. Yeah. Essentially, I want I didn't want you to start with the whole story of, like, the medical path and its unraveling. I wanted people to know that there's, like, a happy ending at the end. And, you know, obviously, you don't need to get into too much detail. But the fact that you're happier than you've ever been, like, that's something that people need to know is possible. Yeah. Yeah. But going back to, you know, you were in medical school with me. So do you want to tell us a little bit about, like, wherever you want to start about that path and what led you on it and then wherever things turned out to be not so great? Yeah. So um, I knew I wanted to be a doctor since I was very little. Um, At at one point, I think I told my mom I wanted to go into fashion, and she said, no, honey, that's a hobby. (laughs) You know, you need to use your mind to help people. And I was like, okay, good. I'm a doctor, right? Because I could. I don't know. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I really was into it. I really love science and helping people. And I just felt like there was nothing else I could do. Like, that was just how I could most, like, most greatly contribute to society and helping others. Um, so I got to, uh, you know, medical school uh, off a wait list. I cried tears of joy. Mm-hmm. I had like I had like signed up for like AmeriCorps, and I was like, it's just like a, you couldn't make this shit up. Like I was unloading, I was like unpacking my last suitcase in that location when our med school called at me, and I was just bawling. Um, I was so happy, and you know, I mean, the first negative experience I had was when. You know, I, I don't know, I failed like three out of the first five exams, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, we were supposed to go to a conference or something like that. And uh, they told me no. And they told other people, yes, who have the same situation. I'm sure you've heard about our medical school on this podcast. Well, I probably should have talked about it more, but there was a lot of uh, favoritism, to say the least. And yeah. I don't know if it was... Uh, just our medical school it seems to be pretty much the standard across America that medical schools will play favorites and punish some students and then let other students get away with essentially murder or close to it yeah so that was you know I kind of lost some steam in getting involved in student things 
after that. But um, so I was diagnosed with ADHD at age uh, five, um, put on medication then. And I didn't realize until looking back now and what I'm doing, how much of a significant impact that that actually had uh, on my ability to achieve these things and how much time it took me and how much frustration uh, it would, it, you know, it would cause. So medical was really hard for me. Like I wouldn't leave the house for a week. I'd go to Target to talk to people. You know, I, I couldn't, I had no life. And you know, you think, you think mental is so hard, you're going through it and it's nothing compared to residency. Yes, that is the truth. You know, so I worked my ass off for four years and I wanted to go into psychiatry and I didn't match. Um, when I found out I didn't match, I was thankfully at the hospital closest to my parents' house, um, you know, 10, 15 minute drive from my house. But I got in the car, I, I told, you know, the preceptor I didn't match, they're like, go home. I got mm. in the car and like my hands were on the steering wheel and I was started screaming, screaming like I was watching a parent be murdered with a knife, like stabbed to death, like screaming, crying, couldn't breathe. Like I shouldn't have been driving, but I got home safely, thank God. And you know, my, both my parents came home from work because I was, cry I was so inconsolable. And then, you know, oh, you know, I have an hour to figure out what I want to do with the rest of my life and resubmit applications. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so I applied to um, psychiatry and you know, I don't know if there was any psych spots, but there was definitely peds and definitely family medicine. And, you know, I thought family medicine would be a great opportunity because it's, you see a lot of psych patients. You're like yeah. usually the first step in somebody getting help. You right, know, because and, there's not, there's a lack of access, there's a lack of providers, mm -hmm. and there's stigma. So things that, man, I mean, I don't know why I'm explaining this, I'm not the psychiatrist, but things that manifest as, you know, psychiatric conditions, you know, go under the radar and they come in as, you know, other things. Yeah, right. the stat is actually that family medicine physicians treat 80% of mental illness in America and only 20% make it to a psychiatrist. Yeah, um, you know, and when I, you know, for, I got into this program right near my med school, um, you know, first round, and my dean, who I didn't even knew, know knew my name, like we'd never spoken, was standing there and she said to me, like, you have to take this, you might never get an opportunity, another, n never get another opportunity. So what was a girl to do when she, when I was in utter devastation? Yeah. I knew nothing about this program, and so it begun. <laughs> uh, so this program is heavily uh, based in the hospital, mm -hmm. um, and the second year, and I, I recognize that this might be common in an internal medicine residency, but a family medicine residency, I would have spent two plus months like in the ICU as rotations, and every call that I would have had to do second year was, um, what's it called, was ICU. So that was, you know, one expectation. Um, they even, you know, they even made me repeat. So my, we had two full months, like on like floors or whatever. And mm -hmm. it was like the only, basically the only doctors in the hospital at night were like, the, like me and the like the my senior resident and I and the second year who was in the ICU obviously. Mm -hmm. So when we started, when I started, I was I was already pretty down, you know, because of everything that happened. Um, I wasn't on antidepressants, um, and then you know the second month or something, I started to really get sad, upset, saying, I really don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. And I think that there's a point to not knowing how sick you are, you know, how much your mental illness is affecting you while you're in it. Um, and, you know, I tried really hard. I felt like there was no other option, like, but to keep going. I was in survival mode. Um, and, you know, in October, 
I um, was called in to sit down with my program director and my, uh, my faculty mentor. He didn't care at all about me, but um, <laughs> my faculty mentor at a, like in the program director's office, like at a round table, and they signed, they signed me a contract. The first they said, uh, we would like to give you the option to take a month off. And my first thought was, why would I take a month off and have to add on to the end? Like, why should I have to suffer longer through this hell? Yeah. <laughs> and I was so upset and nervous. You know, I couldn't even read the contract. It was sitting in front of me. I think it basically said, like, we can fire you and you can't do anything about it. Whatever. Did they, I guess the answer is going to be no, but did they give you an opportunity to, um, you know, have somebody present, like, to represent you, like a lawyer or anything? Oh, no. Like, they didn't prepare you that, you know... No, uh, they didn't, and um, because of the, the level of duress that I was under, that contract isn't valid anyway. Um, but I, I didn't get it. I didn't know that my performance was so negatively impact and that I was so incredibly depressed and it was making my ADHD significantly worse. I, I couldn't see it. I, I was in so much pain because I was working 80 hours a week and, you know, I couldn't stop making mistakes. It was... Well, you know, I have ADHD too. I don't know if we've ever spoken about it. And it's like, it's... I feel like the medical of like anything that you can struggle with, I feel like the medical system is really against people with ADHD. Like, I feel like it's maybe, I mean, of like any, cause it's not really mental. It's more like neuro neurological, if anything. Um, although it gets treated by a psychiatrist or whatever, but I feel like the whole system is really designed in a way to make people with ADHD fail. Like you'll get ostracized. And the reality is just like with any mental health condition or anything, sleep deprivation makes it way worse. So someone who's coming in and they're, they have ADHD at baseline, but it was, you know, maybe controlled um, because in medical school, you actually can get enough sleep if you prioritize it. And then they're now they're depressed, seriously depressed because they didn't match into the field that they desire that they spent, you know, their entire life working towards. And now you put them in a field that they don't want, working 80 hours a week, super sleep deprived, already depressed, already have ADHD. All of those things are going to get significantly worse. And the medical system has a way of instead of helping someone when they're down, they beat you when you're down. And that is what it is like in the vast majority of programs. There are some programs that are an exception to this, but most programs are not. They didn't, and in that meeting, like they didn't say to me, we see that you're suffering. Yeah, I can, I can understand their apprehension to give a diagnosis or give a concern of a diagnosis. And they did offer me my thoughts, but they didn't explain to me why. I didn't even know why they were offering that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like emergency surgeries, like for 10 hours, like, okay, I can see how ADHD could never function to that level, you know, mm -hmm. or having, you know, 20 patients to see in three hours and write in comprehensive note. Like, that is something that m m me, as someone with ADHD, could never do. But I did family medicine, you know? And like their feedback for that was, I had incredible rapport with the patients and I was really stellar in the office. But in the hospital, I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't do it. I got yelled at for not remembering, not, not telling the guy, my whatever, that one of my patients was on Colace. Like I forgot the Colace and like that was something I got yelled at about. Like first like, off, that doesn't even matter. But like two, <laughs> like part of the issue here is that you knew knowing yourself well, I can complete a family medicine residency, which, by the way, if I didn't match psychiatry, that was my plan because I was like, okay, well, I have to think about like my capabilities, what I can do. Well, I won't like it, but I can get through a family medicine residency. And then at the end, I could do what I wanted to do. But to be essentially like tricked into thinking you're doing a family 
medicine residency. But what you're describing is something that's uh, an internal medicine residency, which is not going to be good for someone who it you know doesn't do well under significant pressure, significant lack of sleep. Um, also, doesn't do well working in fields that they're not interested in. Yeah, so, I, I don't, I think having, not being able to have researched the program, of course, you have to make snap decisions. You don't have time to interview everybody and, you know, learn about, okay, this sounds more like a critical care fellowship than a family medicine program. <laughs> and, and what does it, what does it matter if you can't, like, it's almost like they may, might as well have had you go into the OR and do 12-hour cases because at the end of the day, it's family medicine, unless you're in rural, like, you know, the middle of nowhere, Siberia, and no institution is a family medicine doctor needing to take care of ICU patients. And I mean, COVID aside, that wasn't a fair, they set you up for something completely outside of what you would be doing as an attending, which I don't understand yeah. why that matters, why they need to grade you on how you, you know, handle ICU. Like I get like for a rotation or two, but you know, that's so unfair. I'm so sorry. And, thank you. And their final argument, which we'll get to when I was in the boardroom with 20 people, the preceptors, there's probably a lawyer there where, you know, they told me it was not going to happen anymore. Um, that was that they didn't trust me to run the ICU next year. I, it's a family emergency. And when I did, actually, when I did get there, I did ask to see, like, to go be able to go see my psychiatrist, who I was also seeing for therapy, you know, at least once every other week. And they said I needed to use PTO. And I'm thinking to myself, I need to, I, I need to rest. I need to relax. Like, well, I think they just broke ACGME policy by saying that, right? So I'm pretty sure it's in the, uh, you know, rules that residency programs have to buy by that they have to keep that time off. Not that residencies always obey ACGME stuff, but I'm <laughs> noting this so that listeners can know that they should also note this and that you have um certain legal rights you can fight for if something like this happens to you so just wanted to make a note of that yeah so not only did they force me you know to whatever to be in the hospital for those two months plus all of my call in the hospital which i guess is normal whatever they made me repeat a third month in the hospital because my performance wasn't where they wanted it to be and every single week I was in that third month, which was maybe April, um, I'd sit down at the end of the week with the preceptor that was on that week, and they would just basically sit there and tell me I need, I need to work harder, I need to do better. And the last week, uh, I was brought into an office at the end of uh, a unit, whatever. Like, so I'd have to walk all the way back through this unit to get back to the resident room. Uh, one of my preceptors sat me down and said to me, we see how hard you're working and it's just not good enough. We're gonna give you the opportunity to repeat the year, repeat your intern year, or you know, go, go, go your own way, go a different direction. Um, and then that was actually, the, the ability to repeat was actually taken away from me in the end. Uh, but my first thought was, hell no, like, obviously no, like, this is not happening. Like, yeah. I would never do this again on my dead body, it would not happen, you know? Well, I'm glad you uh, had those uh, feelings of self-preservation, because I think, unfortunately, um, it, that's the situation people become, like, acutely suicidal in, where they're like, I mean, the, you're, you feel, because you, like, what do you even do when intern year is so awful for anyone the thought of repeating it is horrendous and then it starts to make a lot of people well everyone sort of feel like they have no choice even if they're able to combat those feelings at the end but you know the and it it just upsets me like obviously there unfortunately are so many stories like yours and I have my own stories of terrible experiences I've been through along this path but like 
these people are physicians. They're supposed to care about other human beings, but then they act like if you are a physician or a medical student or whatever, that you are not worthy of the same grace that you're supposed to give your patients. Yeah. It, it's, it really is an example of how the medical system is really a failure. You know, it really failed me, for real. Um, like, so after that month, April, um, I think I was in the office for May, um, but like at the end of that month, or like the middle or whatever, they took me into this boardroom with every preceptor that I've had. I think there was a representative from the hospital, um, program director, the, the therapist, the psychologist that was on board, like in my family practice unit, practice office, whatever. And, you know, the opportunity to repeat was taken off the table. You know, I don't remember everything that happened because it was one of the worst moments of my life. Um, but, you know, that was taken off the table and they basically said, like, like you need to resign in lieu of termination. Um, we don't trust you to run the ICU next year. I think I probably signed a paper. Like, and they were like, okay, when would you like to finish? So I think I had like a month and a half or two months left. And I said, I'll stay until orientation mid-June because why would I be there for those two weeks of orientation? That doesn't make any sense. So I basically sat in the office for a month like a shell of a human being seeing maybe two patients a day that they would give me of my own patients that I had been seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, I was destroyed. I was destroyed. And then he later wrote in a letter that I didn't complete my residency. It was my choice not to finish because I didn't go to the end of June. Um, I was destroyed. I was, I had no idea who I was. You know, it got to the point that, that last month in the hospital where I would, every time the hospital door closed behind me, I would start bawling, and I'd get in the car, my hands on the steering wheel again, and I'd say, should I crash my car today so I don't have to come tomorrow? Almost every day. And then I'd call my mom, and she'd like, give me a reason to live. Like, there was a time where I like, had a female infection. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was really terrible. And I'd had it for two full weeks before I could go see a doctor because I was in the hospital and you're not allowed to ever take off if you're in the hospital, whatever. And then I had like my phone and if, my, if I don't answer the phone or my senior doesn't answer the phone, they call the other one. So it's never like, you know, you miss something and someone dies, whatever. I looked for her for 45 minutes before I was supposed to leave to go see the gynecologist and I couldn't find her. I called her. I went around to the units and asked the nurses if they'd seen her. And finally, I, I texted her. I called her, whatever. I told her. I left my phone on the desk in the resident room. I had to, leave. I had to go make this appointment. I was in so much pain. And I almost got fired for that. It was... I just... It was, it was unbearable. I didn't feel like a human being. My basic human needs were not being met. I have a, a friend who is in residency, and hopefully he'll eventually come on this podcast. And he was, like, in the Middle East at the height of things in a position where you get exposed to a lot of stuff. And he always says that that was so easy in comparison to what he's gone through in residency. And this is someone who wasn't particularly picked on in residency, just going through, like, the brutalization that happens when you're at, like, a workhorse program. So I, as horrible as what you're sharing is, I want people to recognize that this system is incredibly abusive. Like, how many people are supposed to just suck up having a horrible infection for weeks while still working 80 hours a week for minimum wage and then get threatened with termination when they finally attend that doctor's appointment? Because that's really fucked up. It was so bad. I had tonsillitis eight times, and several of these 
female infections that comes from like autoimmune suppression from stress. Mm-hmm. I had tonsillitis eight times. I've never had tonsillitis before and I haven't had tonsillitis once after. Like yeah. it was insane. And, and I, I also want to speak to maybe like residents who listen to this podcast who see another resident being quote unquote lazy or slacking. I think it's really important to recognize because I had uh, one of my senior residents write a review about me um, thinking that I wouldn't see it, thinking that it was just going to the um, attendings, right? And it said, I would be embarrassed for someone to find out that I went to a residency program with, with Max. And I saw it. And I had another guy literally look at me and be like, you're so lazy. Like, you just want all the work done for you. Like, nobody taught you how to work. Like, and it's like, good luck being a good family medicine doctor and working with your family. Like, I just, like, please be sensitive. Because we're in this together. Like, we're in this together. And, like, you know, I think they thought they sounded like a team player in that moment, like, calling you out. But honestly, it, what, like, you know how is that person going to be a doctor if they can't they don't even have the empathy to see their coworker struggling like it, and what you can't what can you say in that moment it's not like you know i cried yeah of i course. cried if i it already didn't feel horrible about myself you know it was yeah it was not good and i think too like Part of what happens in residency programs, at least toxic ones, which unfortunately I would even go so far as to say the majority are. Obviously it's a spectrum. I I think your program is definitely, or your former program, is on the more extreme end of, of the spectrum of toxicity. But they, unfortunately people in these really toxic programs, there's a lot of narcissists, and they love to find a scapegoat. And you, unfortunately, were the scapegoat and everyone, or for the most part, everyone was getting something out of just like beating you when you were down and contributing to the abuse that you were experiencing, which obviously is in no way going to help you. It's really interesting that you say that because even now I look back and I think, no, he was a really nice guy. He was a nice person, you know, like, and I don't know if that's like, like I'm blaming myself that, you know, and I'm sure, I'm sure I was hard for people, you know, I'm sure he had to pick up on my work sometimes, and that's frustrating when you're in this situation, so, like, I'm not angry at him, I'm angry at that, that girl who said she would have been embarrassed, (laughs) but, Mm -hmm. you know, I just, I don't know, I, I don't know, I feel like when you're in that situation, it's not, you, you're not who you would be in real life because it's not real life. You no, know? it's it's an it's abusive not. environment. And I think too with the, with people who have been, you know, sort of placed into this scapegoat role into their training, I think it's very hard to reject that role. And most people accept it and they're like, yes, I guess I am terrible. I guess, you know, I do, no one wants to think horrible things about themselves, but if you get told horrible things enough, you start to believe them and it can take years and years to sort of break free of that. So even when you're saying, I don't think he was a bad person and you know, let's give him credit. You know, maybe he, maybe he wasn't, but part of it too can be, there's still part of you that thinks that is trying to break free from the things you were told about yourself while you were in that program and is having difficulty with that. Absolutely. So I want to talk a little bit about what happened afterwards. Like I 100% had learned helplessness. Like I could not do anything. Like I couldn't do anything because I was so afraid and I was apologizing profusely for things like just things that you shouldn't be apologizing about like crazy. And like I... So I got unemployment and I basically sat in my my room in Philly for six months, like in the dark, basically, like in my bed, like, 
you know, and I had like, I definitely, I still have sometimes symptoms of trauma. Like I was like, you know, easily startled and I had trouble sleeping and I don't remember parts of it. And like, I had like exaggerated expectations about myself and um, the other like DSM ones are um, persistent distorted cognitions about the cause or consequence of the traumatic events that lead an individual to blame him or herself. Uh, I lived in a constant state of fear. I had derealization, depersonalization, um, and, I, and I was hopeless then, you know, really hopeless. Um, I started reading a book called um, Feeling Good by David Byrne. Uh, it really helped me. It's a CBT-based book and basically teaches you how to journal to talk to yourself and do CBT without the help of a healthcare professional. And I'm so fortunate that my parents uh, allowed me the resources um, to be able to see somebody good. Um, but I had, I, I, I wasn't ready. You know, I was scoring like severe on the Beck depression scale and I, I couldn't, I wasn't ready. I couldn't do it. And I didn't hear anything he said. I was so, such a dark space. Um, but at least he got me to a point where I didn't want to kill myself anymore. <laughs> Um, I think at that point is when I realized that being a doctor for the longest time was the only source I had of you know positive feelings about myself. It was my only identity because face it, when, when you're a doctor, like you're a doctor in the hospital, but you're also like people ask my mother, oh, which one of your daughters is the doctor? You know, mm-hmm. like I mean, you have to act a certain way in social settings because you're a professional, you know? And I, looking back, I see how limiting that was for me. I am not a person who is going to be fake and I'm not a person who is going, you know, to, to bow down. I wasn't at least, but yeah. I was made to be. <laughs> and, and just having this freedom now has really showed me who I am and what I have to be happy about. It took me two years to be proud of myself. I only started being proud of myself like five months ago. For, mm-hmm. for, I didn't, I, I'm a crier. I didn't cry at my medical graduation. I didn't even feel like I belonged there. You know, like. Well, you know, part of the problem too is like what you're insinuating that you have, that there's this idea of professionalism that someone must live up to. And, you know, one of the reasons we got along in medical schools because we're both not like that and I think it's outdated I think you know not everyone is a 70 year old white dude who has a specific idea of what professionalism is and I think you know that idea which once again is outdated and there are just a lot of bad things associated with it it's it's weaponized against people who are literally normal, caring individuals who aren't pretending to be perfect, but guess what? They make better doctors because their patients like them better. It doesn't say anything about their intelligence at all. Actually, you know what? It actually speaks more highly of their intelligence because they have something that those 70-year-old white dudes who are all up in arms over everything don't have, and that's emotional intelligence. So, although... Unfortunately, this system, the way it is, entirely rids itself of people like you who would have gone on to be amazing doctors if it hadn't, you know, bullied you out of it, abused you out of it. You know, I could use even worse terms, but that's something that definitely needs to change because that's just like false, outdated, and it's misogynistic. It's there's racism involved. There's so many things involved in this idea of like what a good doctor should be. Yeah. Yeah. I think what it makes, you know, these, this mold that, you know, obviously is from like 1850s, like, you know, medicine, it it leaves out so much, so many great things. And, um, you know, it, it, and, and that's, I think, it's a, it's a detriment because how are patients going to relate? And I think this is where we see a lot of distrust, like with the vaccine, um, you know, is a good example. Yeah. Who, you know, it's when you make things so rigid and patients feel like they have to fit a mold and fall into like a number and things like that, 
I mean, you know, you sh- people should be able to go to a doctor and the doctor should be like, listen, what, what's going on? You know, your your A1C was, was not good. What's go- Please just tell me. You know what I mean? Versus like, well, you know, medicine, medicine, medicine. We're going to, you know, you have to fit this number. It's, there's no, there needs to be room for that. Absolutely. And, you know, like sometimes people's psychological, you know, wellness impacts their ability to follow directions and take care of themselves physically. Um, so as family practice physicians, you know, internal medicine physicians, to, to be acutely aware of, uh, of that, you know, cause-effect relationship, I think would be incredibly beneficial for patients and for them, increase, you know, outcomes. Um, yeah. So, um, what were we getting? Recognizing who I was, you know, that being a doctor is not who you are, it's what you do. Um, I know medicine traps you and makes you feel otherwise, like you don't have a choice. But there are choices outside of medicine. Um, so, in the, so the, the six months I was well, and then I moved back in with my parents where they got me in with an amazing therapist and a psychiatrist, and I started medication, and I started doing better. Um, I actually, so in, in the, the three years it's been since I left, I went to Australia for, I, I met a guy in Vegas and, and went to Australia for two months with him. <laughs> I, what else did I do? I, I moved to Israel for a year. Is amazing. Amazing. I, you know, I've taken up painting. I exercise a lot. Like, I found things that I love, and I had time to do them. The freedom that I feel is, is, I wouldn't even have been able to imagine this in that first six months, even the second six months. Um, It's really been amazing, but... um, in that second six months, I was really lost, super lost. Like, had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Paid a couple thousand dollars to go see a career counselor who was pointing me in directions. Like, I'm not a business person. Mm-hmm. I don't want a job where I have to be serious all the time. I don't want to sit at a desk. You know, I still want to take care of people. So, you know, I didn't, so I didn't want to get my MBA. I, I went to Columbia and looked at their um, MPH and it just didn't sound right to me. Epidemiology, whatever. Like, I just didn't seem like something, I didn't want to work with numbers all day. Just not what I wanted to do. Um, I went to like networking events um, where I didn't feel like I belonged. You know, and you fake it till you make it, but there's a point where you, if you're lying to yourself, like, I think that's great that you were able to see things that you didn't like, you know, right away. And I think you learned, you learned in those first six months, your value and your worth. And you learned probably so much more about yourself that programs like medicine, like residency, they don't really allow for that self-growth. And I think that that, you know, what I'm hearing is, you know what you want, you know what you don't want. And I think that that sounds like such a different person from like the beginning of your, of your story. Absolutely. And it's not that I didn't know what I wanted then. That took another year. But um, but I think at least you're ruling things out. (laughs) I was definitely ruling things out. Um, And and I think that also this point, you know, I think it's really important that residents advocate for themselves. They shouldn't be afraid because if your residency is doing something wrong, like you have power. You do more than you think, you know, if you're being mistreated. And I think I didn't know how sick I was. I didn't know why I was acting that way. I didn't even think that it was my depression and ADHD that was affecting my performance. So I couldn't even advocate for myself. And I think that a lot of that was not knowing who I was because the process was so intense for so many years. I didn't have time to, you know, gain confidence, to know myself, to know what I liked to know what I deserve, to be able to do that, like advocating for myself. Um, so. I have yeah. a question. Yeah. Did you struggle with depression before you went to medical school? I was diagnosed with depression, I think fourth year of medical school. 
So can uh, we really say that you have depression or were you just having a normal response to an abusive system? I don't know. I guess you can't say. But all I know is at the end, I was severely, severely depressed. So that's, you know? that's why I'm pointing this out. Yes, like, like I said, ADHD, there's something, you know, your brain isn't neurotypical. There are coping mechanisms, medications, things people need to do to help that. But, um, you know, it would be completely ableist to exclude ADHD people from the medical system like they like to do now. But as far as, like, people who develop depression in the process of becoming a physician, I don't think we can say that individual has depression because if at baseline, when they're outside of the system, like beforehand, if they never had that issue, how can we really say they have depression? Because I think that according to studies or at least even talking to people, even people who made it through medical school with like their mental health okay, um, how many of them, especially when they hit like PGY2, which in some ways can be worse for people than intern year because they've already been going through it for a year and now they're a senior and there's so many more expectations and people are screaming at them every which way. I feel like everybody or the va- not everybody, but the vast majority start exhibiting pretty severe symptoms of depression with the exceptions being the people who are generally generally male and generally favored by administration and you know get treated better by like nursing staff etc cetera, etc cetera. so they have a much better experience so the they're not experiencing as much abuse so therefore they're not as likely to develop depression but i don't think you have depression. I think you had a pretty normal response for a normal person to a pretty abusive system. I was definitely traumatized. I know I know I have symptoms of trauma. Yeah. Like 100% still. And, you know, I'm thinking as you're saying this, like even now, like I do go through times where I know that I'm depressed. You know, like I just had to do interviewing for my internship for my counseling program. And... One of them went bad, and then I was not, I was, I've been, I like depressed for two weeks, like, you know. And I don't think, now that you're saying it, that it was like a relapse of depression. It's just like, I'm remembering how traumatic it was. Sounds it could also like be a predisposition. Well, it sounds like PTSD, right? So mm. you're having a, an exaggerated response to what someone who didn't have your traumatic experiences might have. Because they haven't had all the terrible things happen to them that you have had. So when something goes wrong, you're brought back to this horrible stuff you went through in the past. So I think, you know, the period of depression you had is more just like PTSD. And I do think that it would, I think that most people would develop PTSD if they went through what you went through. I would think that if someone didn't, they would be in an extreme minority. Yeah. Um, actually, my therapist, we've been talking about this for several months. Um, she doesn't do EMDR over the computer because that's a very difficult thing to do. Um, and right now I'm, I'm living in San Francisco um, until July. And so she thought it was best that I wait until I'm somewhere permanently to start. Um, but yeah, I'm going to be signing up for EMDR. She said that was something that I needed to do. So I see. I think that's great. I have a lot of friends who um, did EMDR for, uh, trauma and felt it was really helpful. So I hope it's helpful for you. Thanks, Anna. Uh, let's see. Um, okay. So, all right. So I went to Australia and then what did I do for that third six months? Oh, I think I was just at home. No, what did I do? Oh, okay. So in that December, my aunt, like the first six months, end of December, uh, my aunt had died. My, she's 55 years old. Uh, and then my grandma's Alzheimer's started going downhill and she died six months later and she was basically like mm-hmm. my mother. 
Um, and when she died, I'm looking around and I'm like looking at my situation. And I'm like, this isn't working. Like something needs to change. Like I need to change, whatever. So two weeks later, I moved to Israel for a year. Like if you're Jewish, they, you can go whenever you want. They pay for you. I taught English. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I lived on the beach. You know, I, I lived with 10 friends. It, you know, at 30 years old, it's like, I, I, you would think I wasn't into it, but it was great. Like, it was really great. Well, here's the thing, too, because when you're like me and you went straight through college, med school, residency, like, you missed out on a lot of, like, the normal 20s experiences. Like, you never had a time just to be having fun. And especially after everything you went through, this is something that you really needed. So it makes sense that, you know, even at 30, you're having experience that maybe would be more typical of like someone who's 23 or 24. No, yeah, it was great. Look, I took a South African lover, you know. <laughs> she took a lover. <laughs> I took a lover. Um, I actually learned a lot about relationships through him too, like that um, push-pull kind of like uh, inability to handle arguments or push back, uh, which and I you really were able, value now. You were able to do that organically without having your schedule or medicine, like, you know, kind of cloud that. Like, was well, it me or is it my schedule yeah, in these hours? Right? You actually got a pure, you had a closest thing to like a, a pure relationship and you could learn about that. And that's, that's great. That's so beautiful. Yeah, he, he left um, to go take care of his mom during, like, when the pandemic started. Um, so we also get, got some, you know, solo months in uh, Israel. And I lived in the middle of nowhere for a while, like, by the Jordanian border, um, like, January, February. And I was, like, sitting and eating a breakfast, or it must have been dinner, and watching the sunset on my balcony, um, looking at like the mountains of Jordan and, and I was on my computer, like thinking of things I should do. And I just like came across, you know, being a therapist and I particularly a sex therapist, but now I'm going through it again. Um, that's a different story. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and, and I started crying. I started crying. I said, this is it. This is what will bring me joy for the rest of my life. And it was such an incredible feeling. And I sent out applications within the two weeks after that. Um, I got into a great school um, with no, like, they had closed the application. And I had emailed 20 people at the university, including the dean of, like, the school. And they actually had them reopen it just for me oh, uh, wow. so that I could resubmit. I didn't have to have an interview even because of my credentials. I didn't take any tests, uh, new tests. I didn't even have to submit my MCAT score. It's amazing. My essay, yeah, my essay and, um, you know, my credentials really spoke for themselves. Go ahead. Which just speaks to, like, you know, how these residency programs will really try to tear you down or like medical schools like for example when you were in the soap scramble process and you were told by our dean you have to accept this or you're gonna get nothing else and you're made to feel like you are absolutely horrendous that you suck that you you are so lucky if you get anything and then you get out of this little box of like medicine and a therapy program will go above and beyond to open their doors to you and, you know, well, first I'll talk about the, the benefits. Well, second I'll talk about the benefits of being a therapist because they're, <laughs> y'all are going to kick yourselves for being doctors, I'm sorry. Um, but actually, it reminds me when we were talking about um, freedom to be yourself. In one of my courses, my ethics courses, my ethics course, um, we have a girl who, she's, she's, she's pretty alternative um, in terms of her beliefs about most things. Uh, and she came out and told the class that she was concerned that her patients would judge her or not see her because she had a history of, of doing nude modeling um, or, or sex work or, you know, 
mm-hmm. she was alluding to sex work. Um, and that, you know, if you Googled her name, that you could see her images online. And at first I was like really taken aback, like, why would that so unprofessional, you know, for you to, to, for you to say that. And then as she kept talking, I recognized that there's a, there's a huge market for somebody who really deeply understands that lifestyle. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, like just because you've been through something or you've had mental illness or, you know, you're going through something then like you will be the perfect doctor for a lot of people. I didn't think that we would be able to circle back to our sex series through this, but we actually learned uh, from one of our guests today that there are very specific needs in that industry um, that are, you know, are lacking. They're not being met. And that's, you know, kind of part of what she does. So, you know, absolutely, you know, that's, that's a great, you know, they're a hundred percent. But it's also like great too, because you're getting trained as a therapist and it's been ingrained in you in medicine, like, you know, professionalism, blah, 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 blah. And you're starting to recognize that maybe that's just what medicine teaches and not what like you know therapy programs teach which would have a good gauge of what professionalism actually should be instead of maybe how medicine represents what it should be yeah Yeah, guess what every patient out there is not a you know I'm just going to quote 70-year-old white guy, you know, like it's, <laughs> it, it's, it's not. And if you yeah can't understand people on that level or can't refer to somebody to understand them on that level, then we're doing a huge disservice to people. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really lucky. My program's super inclusive and understanding. And, you know, I never wanted to ask for accommodations for my ADHD. And looking back, I think my life would have been significantly easier. But I never wanted to be seen as different. I didn't want people to treat me differently. And finally, uh, this semester, second semester, I'm working with, um, you know, the, the Office for Student Disabilities. And I'm actually getting extra time to do my assignments and extra time on exams. And... It's such a weight to be lifted off my, my shoulders, you know, to really have every single one of my professors have really, really cared, really cared. And it, it was mind-blowing to me that this existed, you know. Um, so I just, I also want, you know, people to really understand when they advocate them for themselves, like, it's like, it's okay to be different. And like people might look at you differently, but you will be able to live a better life, you know? I hope that, you know, one day I can refer medical students and residents and physicians to see you because we also need someone like you very much so as a therapist because not only do you have an understanding of trauma, but there are not many therapists who specifically have an understanding of the trauma that is specific to going through medical training so that's a beautiful I'll actually start seeing patients june 1st so well june 1st not to people be will be hitting July me up 1st. in the dms yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh that's yeah. so exciting oh you must be yeah. so excited i i am and you know another thing i've really been struggling with is financial you know i've been living off loans for my entire 20s my entire 20s, and I, I know I've been lucky that I've been able to have these opportunities afforded by other people, but, you know, I, you know we, but we know, we're strong, we're strong, independent women, we're brilliant women, we know what we're capable of, and finally to be able to support myself while I help people is going to be, it's, I think I'll finally be able to be myself, and I think that does come along with the fact that, like, I measure my success based on how much money I'll be making and you know and how well I do in school whatever like I think it's not the most healthy yardstick to measure success with but um you know that's just the way things are for me Mm -hmm. and I think I will feel even more free and like an adult (laughs) well you know it is really hard like now I will say just because of psych residency you can like moonlight and stuff in your later years but until I got to like my third year of residency and because of circumstances switched to different living situation that was a lot cheaper I was always struggling and it's so 
stressful. And like, even if like you're getting help from other people, you that can still be stressful in and of itself. Like feeling like yeah. a burden, and then like you know seeing your loans go up and and everything that goes into that. So there is a, I think it's very different for someone who goes through the medical training process and comes out with a significant loan burden than people who don't. Because I think part of where the hopelessness and helplessness comes in when things are going very poorly in residency is you feel like you have to stick it out because you see how much, how many loans you have. And like, of course you're like, oh my God, like if I... (laughs) If I don't do this, I won't be making the right type of income to really ever pay them off. You know, it's not like you're just uh, leaving medicine to then have no loans and no income like a normal person. I have had that thought. Negative place. Yeah. I have had that thought many times. So many times. I think that that is a huge red flag when you start to think that this is my only choice because. I need to do this for the rest of my life because I need to do this for the rest of my life. I think that you should automatically be like, I need to evaluate what's going on. Yeah. And it, it, it really takes a long time to go away. And I think a lot of it, it's, it's like, it's trauma. It really is from having lost it or almost lost it. It really doesn't ever go away. It's kind of like an insecure, like a financial insecurity. Um, But you know, I think you use your metric on how successful you are by, it's, you know, somebody will tell you, you, you'll, you'll know, and it'll probably be the first week of work. Somebody will either break down or thank you or give you flowers. And there's just nothing that compares to, to that, uh, to make a friend out of a patient and obviously in a professional way, but like, You'll me- you'll find your your like meter stick of measuring success, um, yeah, and it won't I, be financially. Yeah, that was a big fear. That I, thank you, <laughs> Elliot. That was like a big fear that I had also, especially because my school, my new school, is actually very expensive. But there's income based repayment plans where they can only take a certain percentage of your salary um, for 20 years. So I was at the yes. point with with student loans for med school that they would only be able to they would take that max anyway. So yeah. the money they're giving me now is basically, well, not basically free, but like it's, I won't pay, pay any more yeah. than I would have. And it's I, fair. Let's touch on that briefly because I do want to touch on that just so people know if you're, because people, especially medical students, I think most residents know this, uh, hopefully, if they have loans, but there are sort of two ways you can go after, well, really after you complete your schooling. Um, if you're in like training, that counts. But you can either do the um, PSLF, which is like 10 years, but you have to work for a nonprofit during that time. You make minimum payments, and then the rest is forgiven. But the other option is like 20 years, you can work for whoever you want. And at the end, and the payment, monthly payment will be a little bit higher, but at the end, your remainder is just forgiven. So if you reach a certain amount of loans, at that point, you should probably to just maintain your quality of life and not punish yourself for the rest of your life. Just decide that you're going to go one of those routes, whatever seems better for you, and live your life. And yeah, you'll have a lower like income every month because of it, but you won't be like killing yourself for another t- 10 years or however many years trying to pay things off and delaying your happiness for even longer. Yeah, and light at the end of the tunnel, benefits of being a therapist, I'm still going to make $200,000 a year. Yeah. Plus working where I'm going to be working. Yeah. I make my own hours. I'm my own boss. You know, if my kid is sick, I could just call and say, I'm sorry, my kid is sick. You know, like, the benefits are just... The only field in medicine that has that is that it's not too hard to attain that although it's still hard because all of medicine is it is hard to do this would be like psychiatry everything else you know most people aren't going to be running their own practices maybe Um, Durham 
Yeah, maybe maybe Durham, but even then they have a lot of overhead, right? They have to hire like staff. Um, you, you know, you have to get an MBA. I, I mean, in medicine <laughs> to do like to. And aside from psychiatry, I really think you have to. Yeah, I mean, I'm lucky because my boyfriend lucky. has an MBA, so I am starting my own private practice when I graduate. I don't know if I've said that on the pod yet, and I plan on having the same same life as what you described. But it is a hard too. decision. Yeah, it is a hard decision. Yeah, well, there you go. See? So that makes it a lot more easy, but it's still difficult because, like, if, for example, no one else that I know is taking this path that I am of anybody that I know that's graduating psych residency. But for me, a lot of the things that you have stated about, like, you know, this deep need to be yourself, that's what really, of, of all the positives that you could argue... Um, for going your own route with your own private practice. Obviously, there's a lot of difficulties too. Like you do sort of need someone who has an MBA on your side. Um, For me, I was like, none of the difficulties outweigh the benefit of like, I can be myself if I go my own path. Because if you're working for yourself in medicine, the only thing that people can hold you to is like legal standards of medicine. And... They can't, like, tell you how to do your hair or how you should talk or things like that. So um, I'm excited for your future. And I wish more people knew about, like, the path to therapy before they chose medical school. Because for some people, it might be a better choice than going to medical school. Yeah, I think the prestige is something that's hard to separate from. But recognizing how little stress the whole process is, and how much how much less stress you'll have forever, yes, is they're not words. I, you know, that's the thing, right? So, like, I talk to so many people, and they're like, you know, they did like surgical residency, or they're doing some prestigious fellowship. And, like, I will say the one thing I think if you do psychiatry residency right is you should learn, like, what life is about and what life's meaning is for you and, like, how to live life as best you can for yourself. And so I was able to let go of prestige altogether. And, you know, I wish if if that had happened to me earlier, I don't know if I ever would have gone to medical school because a huge reason people are attracted to medical school is because the prestige, like, oh, I did the hardest thing. But then when you're, like, squished and stomped on by doing the hardest thing, it's not as appealing anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I'm glad... I'm not going to say I'm glad I did it because it was not awesome. Um, but having that title of doctor, I can understand, like, I never have to prove to somebody that I'm intelligent, you know? And I think sometimes mm-hmm. that's hard for me um, to give up on that because I'm still a doctor. Like, in my practice, people are still going to call me doctor because, I, you know, that's... You graduated from medical school. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you deserve that title forever. You are yeah, a doctor. I always, will, I always will have that. So people who are considering going out of a worry about the prestige, like, you're still a doctor. People will still know you're smart. People will know you achieved. People... You know, and, like, it shouldn't matter what people think, but, like, we're human beings. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. So. And that, too, with, like, if if you get accepted to med school and you decide to opt out, well, guess what? You still got into med school. So, like, good for you. Like, you know, what? Where wherever you get to in the process, if it's not right for you, get out. And ideally, you'd have that self-confidence before you ever entered on the path. So you wouldn't need the path to validate you but unfortunately for many people like me it takes you know hitting hitting certain points before you realize okay well you know I am smart but this sort of sucks (laughs) so I guess like the final thing that I point that I want to make um especially for uh, family medicine psych providers who are listening uh would be under like really understanding ADHD and children and adults and the comorbidities. You know, it, it's it's really it's real and it's important. And I think people 
don't understand what ADHD actually is. Um, so I want to also offer a resource um, on YouTube. There's a channel called How to ADHD. And it's so fantastic as somebody with ADHD and a medical provider to have it explained, not just the ADHD, like how it works you know, psychologically and neurologically, all that stuff, but it also talks about like when you do something because of your ADHD, not, not to have to apologize to people because you wouldn't apologize for being diabetic. You know, it speaks to partners of people with ADHD. It's, and she, she's, she's bouncing off the walls. She's hilarious um, and entertaining and the videos are like 10 minutes. So um, it, if I went through anything, and this is something that I also preach in my whatever too, it's just like, especially people who are high functioning, like I'm high functioning ADHD, you know, people suffer, people are suffering. It's, it's hard. Yeah, I mean, you know, I just heard about how to ADHD from another psych resident with ADHD like in the past week, and I haven't looked it up myself yet. But yeah, what you said about not apologizing, I have been forced to apologize my entire life to everyone and comparing it to something like diabetes is actually pretty validating because it is frustrating when you're trying your hardest and you're still not on the level that people want from you or expect from you or that but you expect you're just for yourself doing your best and yeah and that too so then you know other people are upset with you and you're upset with yourself and it's all spiraling so I'm excited to check out that YouTube channel I'm definitely going to look into it well, thank you so much for coming on here and sharing your story. I know this is going to be helpful to a lot of people. And honestly, it was helpful to me as well. So thank you so much. I don't know if we say thank you for this console because it wasn't really a console. But either way, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs>